group of men in green uniforms and women in loose black Shador headscarves roaming the streets in a van is a familiar sight in Iran. This is a patrol of Iran's so-called morality police. Officially called the Guidance Patrol, officers have the power to arrest anyone deemed to be flouting the country's strict rules on how men and women should dress and act in public. While officially they police everyone, men wearing shorts or showing visible tattoos can fall afoul of officers, it is women who are overwhelmingly scrutinised. The morality police enforce the rules requiring all women to wear a headscarf. Not sufficiently covering your head can mean trouble. Infringements can result in fines, detention or prison time, or re-education courses. But the morality police also have a reputation for violence. Beatings, as well as physical and sexual assault, isn't uncommon. But people all over Iran have said enough. On September 13th, 22-year-old Masa Amini was detained by a patrol of the morality police for wearing an improper hijab. A witness picked up in the same patrol described officers beating the young woman in the van on the way to the police station to undergo a re-education class. Shortly after arriving at the police station in Tehran, she collapsed and was taken to Kasra Hospital. Doctors there said she was brain dead on arrival. Three days later, she died. Her death sparked a wave of protest that has rocked Iran for months. The central demand, abolishing the morality police, removing laws requiring women to wear a hijab, and granting rights and freedoms. But this demand cuts to the very heart of what the Islamic Republic of Iran is and what its religious rulers believe makes the country. So who are the morality police? What are the rules they're enforcing? And why is anger at the compulsory hijab posing the most serious threat to the government in years? This is Beyond the Headlines. I'm James Haynes-Young, and this week we're looking at Iran's religious rules and the force that upholds them. Before we start, if you want to get every episode of Beyond the Headlines as soon as it comes out, all you need to do is hit subscribe in your favourite podcasting app. Iran hasn't always been a place where people, especially women, had to observe religious dress codes and wear modest clothing. Jeans, dresses and skirts weren't uncommon on the streets of Tehran until the 1979 Islamic Revolution brought down the Shah and installed a religious theocracy that has ruled ever since. The new Islamic leadership brought in, among many changes, new dress codes and criminalised the mixing of sexes outside of marriage. At the start, unveiled women were attacked by revolutionaries, but later it became mandatory when they were no longer allowed in public buildings. Walking without the compulsory hijab became punishable by 74 lashes in 1983. Sara Bazubani is a research fellow at the Institute for Middle Eastern Studies focused on the politics and the economy of Iran, a country where she's lived and worked. We asked her about the origins of the morality police and their impact on society. Well, this, these forces have been uh, created from the outset of the Islamic Revolution. Uh, back in the days, there were groups of voluntary forces that were just self-organized 
to patrol different neighborhoods to maintain security and, of course, compliance with uh, religious and Sharia regulations newly introduced at the time, rules and regulations across the society. Um, they used to uh, stop cars for searching them for uh, alcohol. They stopped um, couples to ask them what their relationship is. God forbid if a man and a woman were in a car alone and they were not related by blood, they would have end up in uh, prison or receiving lashes or, uh, you know, all sorts of very vicious uh, forms of punishment. When new laws came into effect after the Islamic Revolution, women were required to wear loose-fitting clothes and cover their heads. Even in schools, girls started wearing the hijab from the age of seven. The law, however, didn't include specifications or guidance on what types of dress are improper. Hence, this created room for judgment from the revolution's supporters. Therefore, a new force has appeared. The morality police became institutionalised to combat what they perceived as this improper hijab and clothing. Over the time, it has become more sophisticated, more developed, received more resources from the government and have received different forms of engagement with the public. Um, Different governments, different administrations during different times, uh, different presidents in the office had different approaches. Some have given, like, for example, President Raisi, have given more space to these people to control the public spaces and uh, behavior of the public. Um, Some have been a little bit less uh, sort of supportive. It was President Mahmoud Ahmadinejad in 2006 who formalised the guidance patrols and their presence in the street became really felt. It's backed by the Basij, which is a paramilitary force mobilised in the 1980s to fight in the Iran-Iraq war. These paramilitaries are found in Iranian universities and they take it upon themselves to watch how people dress and behave. Their remit is to check for violations of rules governing behaviour and clothes and based on Iranian clergy's strict interpretation of Islamic law. In general, they favour long clothes and forbid what they consider immodest, which can vary from shorts to ripped jeans. Very well known for the type of cars they have, for the logo that they have on the side of their cars, uh, for the uniforms that they they wear, men and women, because they have female forces as well, because they deal with the you know a lot of uh, female um, targets, I would say. Um, and the the uniform is not exactly the same as the, for example, traffic police, but they have their own uniform, and it's quite visible and quite obvious in every public space. Uh, it's known for all the average Iranian citizens that this is the group of people that you should probably stay away uh, from. And usually they stand, uh, they um, sort of choose certain locations that are busy during certain hours, like certain metro stations, outside of certain shopping malls, outside of, you know, and generally speaking, public spaces that are popular and there there usually are a lot of people there. And they target both men and women. For example, uh, Iranian men, if they have tattoos on their body in parts of the body that uh, are not covered, for 
example, on the neck or uh, on the back of their hands and so on and so forth, they are not allowed to do tests for obtaining driving license. Or traditionally, nowadays it has changed a little bit, but uh, in the early years of the uh, after the revolution, uh, it was traditionally known that in the summer, men are not allowed to wear uh, short sleeves even, with or without tattoo in this case, uh, in, in, you know, government uh, buildings or in universities or in schools. You know, Tehran, for example, where I spent um, the first good decades of my life, um, it can get really hot in the summer and men are not even allowed to wear shorts or sandals in, in certain public spaces. So it is not just about women, it's a whole host of, of things. But this issue of the interpretation is huge. It gives a huge amount of leeway to the morality police officers to decide what is and isn't allowed and the punishments that are handed out. Well, it's very much dealt with at a case by case. The penal code sets a financial penalty in certain cases or lashes in certain cases. But there have been just in the you know months prior to this these protests there has been cases of forcing people to attend forcing Iranian women to attend these short workshops to um, sort of ideologically train them and convince them that it's in their own interest and it's in the in the interest of the society if they complied with the with the uh, codes of conduct for hijab or there has been cases where in which women were forced to uh, write a, a letter of apology and promise that this is not going to happen for the second time and the family usually of the of the women that are being detained are uh, called to bring different outfits outside of the detention centers um, to be handed to their family members to change and come out with a different outfit outside of the detention center. There has been various forms. Um, and again, there is not much of transparency. At least the public is not aware of the mechanism. Maybe internally there is some form of procedure. Uh, but it really varies and it really depends on the judgment of the person who is uh, working in that shift on that particular day. You know, it's just so random and uh, really um, doesn't have any particular logic or structure to it. This room for interpretation, coupled with the lack of oversight or desire to prevent police abuses, means that the force can and have meted out extreme violence. Masa Amini was just the most recent case, although authorities have denied she was beaten. Yes, they have managed to get away with a lot of violence, with a lot of wrongdoings. Um, we have uh, heard recently reports about prisoners being raped, um, men and women. This is not something new. From the beginning of the early years of the revolution, there has been reports of especially sexually abusing female prisoners in Iran, especially political prisoners. There have been reports of sexual abuse of female detainees by the morality police, physical abuse of the detainees by the morality police. So the government have sort of given a carte blanche, if you will, to these um, forces to, to use whichever means of violence that they please um, because there is no accountability, there is no transparency, there is no monitoring system. Uh, and that is why we got to this point. This is one of the reasons that people are on the street protesting is that there is no accountability at any level within that uh, system. 
There are also numerous reports of protesters detained in the latest wave of uprisings being subjected to sexual violence and rape while in detention. The force and the rules that they uphold are front and centre for these uprisings, and women are leading the charge. Almost daily, there are fresh videos of women burning their hijabs, throwing them off in protest. Women too are cutting their hair in public in an act of defiance. It's not at all the first mass uprising in Iran. A 50% hike in the price of fuel led to mass uprisings in November 2019. They're sometimes called the Bloody November Uprisings because security forces are estimated to have killed at least 1,500 protesters. But the subject of these latest uprisings is notable. For many years, when women activists talked about the importance of abolishing or fighting against compulsory hijab as a means to push back against the state oppression, they were criticized inside and outside of the country that this is not our priority. They, you know, they, this is the last thing that Iranian women are worried about. We have all sorts of other grievances to and, and causes to fight for. Uh, but in this particular moment, it seems to have united men, women across social classes, across different localities, across different uh, ethnic backgrounds to stand up against this. Because I think people came to realize that this was one of the forms of one of the very obvious forms of oppression by the regime. And this movement is to stand up against that oppression. Should it be about hijab? Should it be about freedom of speech? And uh, should it be about the current socioeconomic environment? The protests have reverberated around the world, drawing in support from global leaders and celebrities. International sanctions have been imposed on the morality police, and even at the World Cup, Iran's football players were in the spotlight. Vanya, a 21-year-old Iranian studying in Qatar, hit on this idea of the issue of the hijab being a lightning rod for a much larger grievance to do with freedoms and the economy and government repression and ways of life. This is not a fight for hijab. This is not a fight for like what people are wearing, what women are wearing. Women are leading this revolution not only for themselves, but for choice of living. Whether that choice of living is where they want to dress, um, who they want to be with, who they want to, cho- who they want their partners to be, um, where they want to study, where they want to go, what they want to do, what they want to eat, and what they want to drink. It's all these tiny choices that make up the human experience and we have been neglected of these uh, decisions our entire lives. But people are scared as well. The violence from the regime is also overwhelming. Tens of thousands of people have been arrested since September and in November, Iran carried out its first execution of a protester. The UN says that at least 300 people have been killed, including 30 children. Is that the main reason that we are here, to just be voice of our people, of our country? The people at the moment, they are fighting to just have their human rights. You cannot believe that the regime, they are killing kids, children in the high school, in the street. You cannot believe that, how they are fighting, you know? We are just trying to protect our family, our friends in front of the regime. Yeah, just please be our voice, be our voice of the family. So thousands of people are out on the streets, demanding that the government rein in the morality police or abolish them and drop the laws around women wearing a hijab. 
But how has the government responded? Well, on the streets, the police have carried out thousands of arrests. They've beaten and tear-gassed protesters, and skirmishes are ongoing between the protesters and the authorities. But politically, Iran's Attorney General, Mohammad Jaffer Montazeri, said that the parliament and judiciary were reviewing the hijab laws. But Sara doesn't think that there's a consensus yet within the political establishment and worries that the government may see it as a Berlin Wall moment and refuse to bow to pressure. I think the government or, you know, different factions within the political elite, let's put it this way, because not um, all these decisions are not only made within the, the official uh, government. There are various pockets of political power and religious power that have influence on forming policy in Iran uh, that perhaps are not officially mandated with, with these policymaking sort of responsibilities. Um, so overall, I don't think at the moment, to be honest, there is a particular consensus amongst all of these different factions. They don't really know what is best at this stage. And that is why we hear all these contradictory remarks. Some are um, condemning the government's political obtuseness, I would say, and some are um, basically supporting this. So there is this internal debate. Um, There is no clear decision uh, made so far. And I would say that even if the government and all these different pockets of political power come to this conclusion that they want to abolish completely the the law of mandatory hijab, uh, this is not something that the people would be completely happy about as the final ending of the uprising because the demand of the protesters goes way beyond just the question of hijab. Um, It might be as a gesture by the government to uh, calm the public down, to bring back the order um, across the society, but I wouldn't imagine that would bring the result that the government expects. And that right there cuts to the heart a worry about what could happen if the government makes any concessions. Remember, the Iranian regime sees itself as an Islamic revolutionary movement. Everything they do is to protect that and further those revolutionary aims. Turning around now and accepting that the hijab is not mandatory, well, for some hardliners, that would spell the end of the revolution. This much is clear in the rhetoric of many of these hardliners who have branded the protesters as terrorists and extremists and called for their uprising to be put down. And I think the government also, at least certain elements of the political elite, uh, view the, the law of hijab as, as the Berlin Wall. And they, they view it as uh, a, an issue that if the government gives in, uh, that could be uh, technically the end of the, the revolutionary Islamic revolutionary regime. And I think that the, at the heart of the public grievances is um, what formed, as you mentioned, the Islamic revolutionary government. And that is a government that is formed around a certain interpretation of Shia Islam. And the people are demanding for a separation between religion and politics. They want a government that is 
that can be held accountable for violations of human rights. But violations of human rights have been often justified by the political elite as um, accepted within the Sharia law, as, you know, uh, for example, you know, various, various interpretations, various death sentences that are now being handed to the, um, to the protesters as acting against God or, 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 you know, fighting against God or various um, religious-oriented justifications for, for these violence. And I think what people want is a separation. Uh, what makes the Islamic revolutionary government is this combination of ideology and political system. So if there was a separation, as you mentioned, there would be no uh, Islamic revolutionary government. President Abraham Raisi has said that the people's voice must be heard. But he's not exactly seen as being from the more reform-minded branch of Iran's political spectrum. And Sarah points out that a halfway house solution may actually make the situation worse. Since Amini's death in September, the morality police have been fairly absent from the streets of major cities, although other security agencies are out in force. If you have a penal code, but not a proper mechanism to observe uh, compliance with the rule that the penal code is built upon, then it makes even the situation more difficult for women and for ordinary citizens in that country. Because anybody basically will be able and allowed then to claim anything they wish uh, against anyone. So that that would make things even more complicated. And we could we we already witnessed that. You know, there are various videos and footages being circulated across the social media that shows citizens in or Iranians in plain clothes. I I would say that these are not perhaps just ordinary citizens, all of them. These are plain clothes regime elements that are doing exactly the same thing that the um, uh, so-called morality police was doing in public spaces without wearing the uniform, without having the ID card. And they get, you know, extremely verbally violent, sometimes physically violent against uh, women because of the way that they they choose to, you know, appear in public spaces. So uh, as long as the penal code is there, nothing will change. The government is unwilling to simply change the rules and protesters show no signs of backing down. So what does that mean on the streets? So far, it seems like they are more interested in escalating violence uh, and escalation of violence puts the situation in a vicious cycle of more public anger, which is responded with more violence and the cycle will continue. It is exhausting. It's not constructive. Um, there is very little that either side can achieve from. Uh, but unfortunately, this seems to be the most desirable scenario for uh, the regime because they are uh, nearly three months into the protest. We haven't seen any form of um, response that can give hope to the people that there might be change on the way. Thanks this week to Sarah Bazabandi. This week's episode was produced by Dua Farid, Arthur Edison and Thomas Smith. I'm James Haynes-Young. Thanks for listening to Beyond the Headlines. For all the latest episodes, just hit subscribe in your podcasting app. And if you can leave us a review while you're there, it makes all the difference. <laughs>